As Joel mentioned, we're going through the series, The Lion and the Lamb, where we're looking at the person and the work of Christ. Who was Jesus and what did he do? And so to do that tonight, we're going to consider one passage and one aspect of his person. But before we get going on that, I just want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to stop what you're doing. And I want you to imagine that you're living in the first century Israel, 30 A.D., We're 1,850 years away from electricity being invented, just about, right, Ben? 1,900 years before the first vehicle, 1,950 or so before the first computer, and 1,980 before cell phones. Needless to say, your life would look a little bit different, would it not? Okay, you're wearing robes and sandals to work. And by the way, most, if you were a man, you were probably a fisherman. And so you're a fisherman. You and your brothers have gone in together and you own a fishing company until a teacher comes along and you decide to follow this teacher or this rabbi. This would have been a common practice. There was rabbis uh, and teachers that men would follow and they would teach from the Old Testament law. And so you've committed yourself to following this teacher, you and 11 other guys, okay? Now I want you to imagine, (laughs) and maybe to help us think about this, think about someone spiritually that you look up to, maybe a discipler, a pastor, I want you to imagine that you're in a prayer meeting with this teacher, and he prays this. He says, Father, glorify me together with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Would you open your eyes and look at him maybe and and think, what? What would you do? What would you think about that? What would you do if this teacher said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? What would you do if this teacher told you that he was God? Would you be scared? Would you be excited? Would you be amazed? Would you believe him? Well, then what would you do if he started to do these miracles? He was healing the the sick, healing the lame, healing the blind, healing lepers, casting out demons, turning water into wine. He took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed 20,000 people two times. He escaped death on numerous occasions. You'll read in the scripture, they were going to kill him and he just slips through. And he raised the dead. What would you do if this was the teacher you were following? Would you shout it out to the whole world? Would you gather the the newspaper and say, hey, you guys got to come get this. You got to come record this. Maybe would you write a book? Well, you may have guessed it, but The man whose shoes we're considering is the Apostle John. And so tonight we're going to look at John chapter 5, who was an eyewitness, not only an eyewitness, but it says he was the one whom Jesus loved. He was the closest disciple to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to look at what he said tonight in John chapter 5. As you're turning to John 5, I want to set the context. Jesus, in the early parts of John 5, has just walked into a mob of sick, blind, and lame, and he healed the guy that had been sick for 38 years. Okay, what was the problem with this? Well, he did it on the Sabbath. And that was a big no-no for the Jews. The Jews were very strict in their religious rules, uh, and, and despite the fact that Jesus had done a miracle and healed a man, they were seeking to persecute him. Uh, look at verse 17 or sorry, 16, it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
Now, at this point, Jesus easily could have formally apologized. He said, I'm sorry, I won't ever do it again, uh, and, and kind of backed off. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 17. It says, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus drops this statement like a bomb. If his healing on the Sabbath was, was kind of hitting the beehive out of the tree, then, then this statement would have been him kicking the beehive like a soccer ball. He has really riled up these Jews now. His statement here is essentially saying that just like God never stops running the universe, so he too will not stop working because he is God. This was a blatant and outright claim to be equal with God. And what follows is the Jews' reaction. Look at verse 18. It says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And so yet again, Jesus has the opportunity to apologize, to back off, maybe just to disappear But he doesn't do that. Instead, the rest of John chapter 5, verses 19 all the way to 47, are Jesus' dedication to defending his deity. He's going to call to the stand five witnesses to defend his claim of being God. And this evening, we're going to consider the first one. And so to begin, let's look at verse 19, and I'll read 19 to 24 of John 5. It says, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He, does not, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And so just to dig in, I want to begin in verse 19 and look at the Son's unity with the Father. These words, truly, truly, right off the bat, is Jesus' way of emphasizing the importance of what he's about to say. Rather than backing down from the Jews persecuting him, not only persecuting, but seeking to kill him, Jesus is saying, hey, listen up. I got something to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, what follows, though, at first glance, appears as though Jesus may be limiting himself. He says, the son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the father doing it. Why would he say this? Why would he appear to right off the bat limit himself when he's trying to make himself out to be God? Well, in fact, this isn't at all what he was doing. You see, the Jews in this day would have, they would have been believers in God. They would have had a high regard for God. And in fact, in verse 18, we saw they weren't too excited about someone claiming to be God. So when Jesus claims to be equal with God, they responded by seeking to kill him. So what's Jesus saying in 19? Well, actually, catch this. He's not limiting himself, but he's in fact making a statement of unity with God. To paraphrase these words, he's saying, I am so unified with God the Father that I will do nothing that is not his will. He is truly one with God the Father. Jesus was perfectly submitted and conformed to the Father's will. 
He is one in both essence and nature with God. Therefore, whatever God's will was, was ingrained within the fabric of the person of Jesus. Listen to just a few examples from the Gospel of John. Jesus speaking in John 6.38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In John 12.49, he says again, For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And in John 14.10, he says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So we see that the Father and the Son are one, completely unified. The second half of verse 19 says, Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. This again is a claim of deity from the Lord Jesus. Claiming to do what the Father does was a blatant and outright claim to be equal with the Father. No one would claim this unless he himself thought he was God. No one would claim to be able to sustain the universe, to be able to hold every molecule together, to be able to cause mountains to form and oceans to stop at the shore. No one would claim this unless they were God. No normal man would ever claim this. But that's exactly what Jesus is claiming in verse 19. But he's not done. Moving on to verse 20, he's going to expound on this further. In verse 20, he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. In the first part of verse 20, we see really a foundational truth in Christianity, and that is that the Father loves the Son. But how are we to understand this? I thought Jesus is making the case he's one with the Father, and now he's saying that the Father loves the Son. So they're one, and yet there's some interpersonal relationship within them. And maybe you know where I'm going, but the answer to this question is the Trinity. This is, this is Trinitarian language, even in John chapter 5, of Jesus saying, I am one with the Father, and yet the Father loves the Son. But here's the interesting point, point in this verse. The word love in Greek is the word, it's not the word agape, right? There's other places where it says the Father agape loves the Son. In other words, he perfectly and sacrificially loves his Son. But in this way, in this text, this word love is phileo, which is a brotherly love. What's the implication? Well, not only does the father sacrificially love his son and perfectly love his son with a godly love, but he also likes him. The father likes the son. He enjoys the son. He cares for the son. We could really read this verse and say, the father likes the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the picture that I'm getting here from this text is that it's like a father teaching and loving his son. You know, there's kind of a a debate about whether behavior in children is learned or if it's natural or genetic. And I don't know where you land on that, but I'm of the opinion that there's a little bit of both from personal experience. And uh, since they're here, I'll I'll use them as an example. My grandpa was a farmer for years and years and and in the later part of his life, a, a rancher. And my dad's done a fair bit of both of these as well. And it's interesting to see how my dad will often do things like his dad did them. He'll do the things that his dad's taught him. And I do the things that my dad's taught me. I remember my dad teaching me how to tie a fishing hook, six loops around and then through and pull. 
It's exactly how I do it. Why? Because I learned it from my dad. There was an intimate relationship there that was learned. Okay, so that's one side of the argument. What about the other side? Well, uh, I grew up away from my dad, and uh, part of the fun of growing up and getting to build this relationship with my dad was figuring out what things he did that naturally I did, that I hadn't learned from him. And I got to tell you, I just figured out one of these a month ago. We were up in the Bridgers running. We're running this trail, and he's leading the way. And it starts to kind of get steeper and steeper and steeper. And my dad, rather than slowing down, he starts sprinting and yelling at the top of his lungs and singing these songs out loud to try and kind of psych himself out. And I'm trying to keep up, and all of a sudden I realized, I do that exact same thing. I don't know anyone else that does that. I can remember football workouts and I'm getting tired and it's like, oh, I'm not tired. I'm going to sing and yell and try and psych myself out. Sure enough, my own dad does it as well. Well, what's the point? Why do I tell these silly stories? Listen, gang. The person of Jesus represented the Father both in the learned aspects and the natural aspects perfectly. Jesus was so intimately acquainted with the Father while on earth that he perfectly did what the Father did, but he also possessed the very nature of God. One might say that he instinctively did the things of God. Jesus was God, and yet at the same time, he was fully acquainted with the person of God. Can you believe this? Isn't that awesome? John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so we see that Jesus represented the Father. The next part of verse 20, though, if you look at it, it says, The Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Before moving on to what these works are, I want to answer the question, what does it mean, so that you may marvel? Is Jesus trying to put on a great show? Is he trying to win the crowd and be a people pleaser? Well, I don't think so. If you read one more chapter in John, John chapter 6, you'll see that Jesus says to the multitudes, thousands of people, if you want to follow me, if you want to have eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everyone left. Okay? Jesus was not trying to win the crowds. So what does it mean when it says, so that you may marvel? Well, simply put, it was that Jesus would do miracles to validate his claim to be both Messiah and God. Jesus would do many miracles, signs and wonders in order to validate his ministry. And and believe it or not, some would believe. Some would believe. And I say believe it or not because unfortunately there's so many examples where people don't believe. But a lot of times he would do a sign and people would believe in him. And so it is this work in mind that Jesus says that he will cause them to marvel. The next question though is what were the original works? Right In verse 20, it says, I will show them greater works than these. What were the these? Well, I mentioned in context, John, in context, John chapter 5, Jesus did what? He walked in to this area of the sick, lame, and ill, and he healed a man. And at the end of John chapter 4, Jesus also healed a man. So it's likely that these two scenarios are what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to show you even greater works than these, greater works than healing someone. And to me, I've got to ask the question, what are these greater works? Well, look at verse 21. Here we see the Son's power displayed. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. 
Guys and gals, Jesus not only can heal the sick and did heal the sick, but he has the authority and the power to give life to whom he wishes. Sin's curse on mankind has resulted in a sin nature. Because of sin, there's sickness, disease, deformity. Jesus showed many times that he was Lord over sin by healing these sicknesses, by healing these infirmities. But sin's ultimate end is what? It's death. Sin's ultimate end, its ultimate goal is death. And Jesus is claiming here that he has lordship even over death, even over sin's end. It would have been a known fact that only God could raise the dead. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. And there are several instances in the Old Testament where God does this exact thing. 1 Kings 17, the Lord brings back the widow's son on behalf of Elijah's prayer. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha heals a woman's son by the power of God. And several other instances. And yet now Jesus is claiming that he can raise the dead. What's he claiming? He's claiming that he is God. I want to show this. If you've got a Bible, flip over to John chapter 11. If you don't, that's all right. Just listen along. And look at John chapter 11, verse 32. Just to set the context, Jesus has just been informed that one of his friends, Lazarus, has died. And Lazarus' sister Mary is going to really confront Jesus about this because she knows he could have done something about it. So in John chapter 11, verse 32, it says, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone, Martha, the sister of the deceased. Or Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Guys, can you imagine being here for this? Again, imagine you're John, and you're witnessing Jesus, and you see the tomb rolled away, and you can smell the stench of this dead man. He's wrapped in the clothing that they would bury him in, in this tomb. And Jesus, at a command, commands this man to have life again. After being dead, how long? Four days. And out comes Lazarus, alive. Again, I'm going to look at Jesus and, and be, I mean, in your mind, how would you be justifying this? 
How would you be thinking about this? If you watched him command him and he comes out walking, I would just fall on my face and worship, I think. Now, I want to point out an interesting note in John 11. Look at the beginning in verse 1. I want to show you why perhaps Jesus did this. In verse 1 it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So this is before he had died. Verse 3, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death. And catch this. But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Was it true that Jesus loved Lazarus? You bet. But was it also true that Jesus was going to use this event to glorify both the Father and himself? Absolutely. And you know what? Lazarus would go on to become a believer And you know what else? The Jews would still not only seek to kill Jesus, but then it says they were trying to re-kill Lazarus. Just later, just keep reading in John and you'll see they're trying to kill Lazarus as well. Well, as we return to John chapter 5, there's another crucial consideration that I want us to think about when it says that Jesus gives life to whom he wishes. Much of what Jesus did was dual-purposed in nature, right? He would heal an illness, but then he'd say, I can offer you true spiritual healing. He would feed the multitudes, and then he'd say, I am the bread of life. If you want eternal life, you must eat of me. And I believe so it is here in this text that Jesus gives life to whom he wishes, not only physically, but also spiritually. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is imparting life to individuals, And in the book of Acts, one of these individuals was the Apostle Paul. Paul received the life from Jesus. And what Paul would go on to do would be to write much of the New Testament. And Paul and Peter and John, they would write about the life that comes from Jesus. And all the way from this time, when the church begins, all down through history to right now, Jesus is still giving life to individuals like you and like me. By God's grace, I've got it. Do you? Do you have the life that Jesus gives? Now, I want to consider this phrase, eternal life. Jesus imparts life to whom he chooses, and it says he gives eternal life to whom he wishes. But we don't have the right to this. It's not our inherent right. When it says he gives life to whom he wishes, it's not up to me necessarily. I don't have this demand of him. And so it is completely by grace. And so if you've received eternal life, you know it is by grace. It's not of your own doing. But I want to consider this. Eternal life is available. And not only eternal life in quantity, but also in quality. So we're talking time, but also quality of life now. And get this. The minute a person places faith in Christ... They have eternal security for their future, but they also have eternal life here on earth right now. Not a blissful, prosperous life, but one that's in close communion with God, with fulfillment and purpose. Eternal life, gang, is to walk with God through life. That's what it means to have eternal life, both future security and fulfillment now. 
Now, before moving to verse 21, I want to draw attention to one more detail, or moving on from 21, and that is this. He says, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. Why would he add this phrase? Why would he add this phrase, to whom he wishes? I thought he was trying to make the point that he and the father were completely one. Now he's saying he gives life to whom he wishes? Well, as with any text, we have to discover what John is trying to say. The author, John, is quoting Jesus with an intended audience, and we have to understand what his authorial intent was. And I think he made it clear that in verse 19, Jesus is sharing the truth that he and the Father are one, that their wills are even identical. But catch this, Jesus is moving to another aspect of his deity, and that is that he is not only one with God, but he also has equal authority with God. Not only does Jesus do everything that God does, but whatever Jesus does is exactly what God would do and is directly from the authority of the Father. He has the authority of the Father. Jesus had the authority to act on behalf of God, not surrogately, but directly. He never went outside of God's will. He he didn't have to constantly ask God's permission to do something. But he was God. Therefore, he could act within his own will and fulfill God's will. And this seems to be what he's driving at here when he says, he can give life to whom he wishes. And get this, to go even further in the exaltation of Jesus as being divine, not only is he one with God, and not only does he have the same authority and power as God, but now Jesus is given a unique role from the Father that he alone possesses. And look at verse 22. It says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. To restate the question that I asked earlier, what greater works would Jesus do? He does give life to whom he pleases, but he will also act as judge, and in fact has acted as judge. Now, lest we be deceived, this isn't minimizing the Father's authority or power, uh, but it is telling us that Jesus holds a unique role even within the Trinity as judge. Now, this phrase, not even the Father judges, this would have been an interesting statement to the Jewish audience because they knew that God was the ultimate judge. All through Scripture, they'd see God judges Israel, God judges the nations, God even acted in judgment in certain scenarios. But now we actually see that This was Jesus. Well, if you happen to be here last time I spoke, I spoke on the pre-incarnate existence of Christ. In other words, Jesus before he came to flesh. And one of the roles that we saw Jesus as over and over again, often under the alias, the name of the angel of the Lord, was him carrying out the judgment of God. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus, in a spiritual state, is often taking the form of a body or taking the form of an angel and carrying out the judgment hand of God. This is confirmed in John chapter 5. This is also confirmed that Jesus will be judged in Revelation 6, Revelation 19, when it's talking about the end times when God will judge through Jesus. It says the Lamb will carry out the wrath of the Father. If you're in John, just flip one book to your right to Acts, chapter 17. just want to show you this in one other place. We could really spend an entire evening on Jesus as judge. But look at Acts 17, verse 30. 
It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And the man whom God has raised from the dead and given judgment to is none other than Jesus Christ. Matthew 10.32 says, Therefore everyone, this is Jesus speaking, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was the ultimate judge. He is the ultimate judge and he will be the ultimate judge of all of mankind. And so returning to John chapter 5, let's recap. In verse 17, Jesus stated that just as the Father is working, so he is working. And the natural implication of this statement was perceived by the Jews to be making himself out to be equal with God. In verse 19, Jesus claims to be one with God. In verse 20, he says, I'm going to do greater works than God. In verse 21, he states that he has equal authority and power as God. And now in verse 22, he says he alone has the authority to act as judge on behalf of God. And I believe that verse 23 is really his ascension to the peak of his argument. Before looking at 23, I want to ask this question. Why has God given all judgment to the Son? Why is the Son able to give life to whom he wishes? Why is the Son able to be judge? Why is the Son valued so much? And look at verse 23. We read this once, but it says, I'll read the second half of 22, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The purpose of Jesus being judge of all mankind is so that they will honor the Son in the same way that they honor the Father. The judgment is the judgment of every man and every woman who will ever live on this earth. We will all stand before God and we will be judged by the Son and what we've done with Him. I want to ask this question though, just as a little side tangent. What will be the basis of our judgment? How will He judge us? What will be His standard? And really a biblical answer I think you could say is He'll judge us by our works. Right? I could show you text after text after text that says he will judge us by our works. But let me ask this question. In light of what Scripture says about God, God being perfect and in dwelling in unapproachable light, and Psalm 5-4 says no evil can dwell among God. No unclean thing can be in his presence. How many of us do you think will be able to stand with God based on our works? Not a one Listen to Romans 3, and you can turn there if you'd like after Acts. But Romans 3, verse 10 says this, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And guys and gals, I challenge you to think about what is my standard? What is the comparison? Am I comparing myself to other humans? Or am I comparing myself to God's standard for heaven? Because heaven is perfection. There's no flaw in heaven. So I know I couldn't be there on my own. 
Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we were to end there, this would be a really sad evening. But most of you know this truth. And if you don't, I pray that you listen. There will be a few who will stand before God and not unveil their list of works that they've done and not unveil their religious credentials. I've gone to church and read my Bible. But they will be clothed in the righteousness of the very one who's going to judge them. They will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is where their fulfillment, their entire sufficiency will be. That is what they will present to God. Lord, there's nothing I've done, but I've trusted in your son who did live perfectly, who is perfect. He had the right to enter heaven, and now I've got his righteousness on my account because I've put my faith in him. I haven't done a work, but I've turned from my works and trusted in him. And this small portion of those who stand before the mighty king are those who will enter into heaven. Those who have trusted in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I count all things to be loss. And in, in the context, he's talking about all of his religious credentials. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had kept the law. And he says, I count all things to be lost in, the view, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you see how this is an, it's an alien righteousness? It's an imputed righteousness. It's from outside of ourselves. It's a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Guys, we're all going to stand before Jesus. It's a, it's a known fact. It's in the text all over. And all of our works will condemn us. There's none who does good, but some will stand in Christ's righteousness. And the only work that there is to do is as John 6.29 says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now to come full circle, do you see why Jesus will be judged? Does that make sense, why Jesus will be judged? Those apart from Christ will be judged for their unrighteousness. They'll be judged for the fact that they've sinned, but they will also be judged for rejecting Christ's offer of salvation, and they will be judged by him for this rejection. God has shown the greatest act of love and grace, and yet rather than receiving this, some are going to come to him with their chin held high, looking at their own religious credentials, looking at their own righteousness that they think they've earned. And they will experience the wrath of the Lamb, as Revelation 19 says. Ultimately, all will honor the Son, as John 5.23 tells us, but for some it will be too late. Look at verse 23 again. It says, So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And I don't want to comment much on this, but I want to say this. It is impossible, okay? It is impossible to honor God the Father and reject the Son. 
It is not honoring to the Father if one is rejecting the Son. Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, any cult does not honor the Son as God. Therefore, they do not honor the Father. That's, it's what the text is saying. Considering Jesus as a prophet or a good teacher, it's not enough. He must be honored as God. That's what Jesus is claiming. 1 John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Therefore, friends, we must believe in Jesus both as Savior and God. He must be Lord and Savior. Well, if we were to shift for a moment, Jesus has warned of the judgment to come, but he doesn't leave it here. He doesn't leave us in the pit. Look at verse 24. Now we see the son's call to faith and the good news. In 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. And so again, we see him saying, truly, truly. In other words, listen up. Okay, you heard what I just said? There's going to be judgment, but listen up. This is important too. And what he gives next is a glimpse of the wonderful love and compassion of Jesus. He offers salvation to all through him. He says that in order to receive salvation, you must do two things. Number one, you must hear my word, right? He says, he who hears my word. But number two, you must believe God. Well, what was his word? Well, it seems that his word was what he just spoke, that God has given him authority to judge, that he can give life to whom he wishes. So he who hears my word, but also he who then not only hears it, but believes it, that believes in Jesus, that man will be justified. Jesus is saying that this is God's doing, that God the Father has sent the Son, and whoever believes that God has made the Son the judge and the Son the only way of salvation, whoever believes this will be saved. Listen again to John 6.29. This is important. It says, this is the work of God, speaking of the Father, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is God's will. This is the Father's will. And this kind of belief looks like putting a trust in Jesus rather than in yourself. It's recognizing that we're spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer but trust in the perfect Son. And so, just to kind of begin to land this, this plane and wrap things up, I want to consider a few things about Jesus that we've drawn from these few verses. Number one, Jesus is God. He demonstrated this by His unity with the Father and his person and work. He demonstrated this by his authority and his power. He demonstrated this by the judgment and honor given to him from God. But number two, if that's Jesus' standing and his position, number two, look what he's done. Jesus has offered salvation in verse 24. The way of salvation is belief and the result of salvation, and I want to look at this for a second. At the end of 24, the result of salvation is twofold. Number one, what's it say? It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Okay, those who are believers in Christ will not experience the Son's judgment, but will rather experience life. But notice the verse says that whoever believes has eternal life. It doesn't say will have. It doesn't say one day will have. It says has. And then to come back to this again, they experience 
eternal life in the future, and that's locked in, secured the the minute you place faith in Christ. But further, they experience eternal life here on earth. Fulfillment, purpose, joy. Again, not prosperous necessarily, but a purpose in life. We're made to worship God. And that eternal life is given through faith in Christ. But secondly, look at what 24 says. It says he <clears throat> has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And the second part of this is not only do we have eternal life, but we will never have condemnation. For those who have fully placed their faith in Christ, there is never going to be condemnation. Your eternal security is secure if you have truly turned to Christ. Nothing will change the reality of those in Christ and their destiny in heaven. It's just a, it's a done deal. And in fact, this, this verb here that's translated passed out of or crossed over, this verb's in the perfect tense, meaning that it's entirely and wholly complete and is for sure going to come to fulfillment. There's nothing that will change this fact right here, that one who has placed faith in him does not come into judgment, but is passed, passed out of death and into life. Listen to Romans. In fact, why don't you flip to Romans as we close. John, Acts, then Romans, chapter 8. Look at verse 1. Therefore, Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guys, it's a done deal. It's secure. There's no condemnation. You've passed out of death and into life. But here's the kicker. You have to have put your faith in Christ. You have to have turned and put your faith in the person and work of Jesus, the one who said he was God. Just to come back to the Apostle John's experience again, what would you do? What would you do if you saw this guy that you're following, this teacher, doing these miracles and making these claims, would you believe him? Do you believe him? Because it's a historical fact that Jesus lived and said these things. And it's up to us to wrestle with this. If you have believed him, then I want to encourage you with these words as we close. Romans 8, if you're there, you can look at 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's bow together and pray. Father, I pray, God, now that we would be amazed at you. Lord, that we would be amazed at your Son. Lord, to think about the claims that he made to be God. Lord, that he has offered all eternal life. Lord, that he rose from the dead to prove that he was God. Lord, there's really no other response except to put our faith in him. Lord, for believers, I pray that you would renew afresh their love for you, their devotion to Christ, Lord, that this would spur them to obedience and service. Father, would you work in my own heart to love you more, God, to be more thankful for this. 
Lord, what a joy there is in knowing that there is no condemnation for those who have trusted in Christ. Father, nothing will change it. Our eternity is secure. Therefore, God, we ought to live sold out for you. Lord, thank you for this wonderful doctrine, this wonderful truth of the deity of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.